This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. This is Carrie Lynn Evans, welcoming you back to New Books and Secularism, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. Today, I'm looking forward to sharing with you Childhood, Religion, and School Injustice by Dr. Carl Kitching. In it, he examines how debates about religion and education internationally often presume the neutrality of secular education governance as an irrefutable public good. But on the other hand, understandings of secular freedom, rights, and neutrality in schooling are continuously contested, and social movements have disrupted the notion that there is a uniform public to be educated. Simultaneously, he argues, unjust neoliberal and majoritarian education policies constantly undermine collective notions of what is good and just. Dr. Kitching presents original empirical research on how religious and secular schools are positioned as competitors for parents' attention, and shows how inequalities shape parents' interests in and access to both secular and religious schools. Kitching particularly explores how children in urban and rural settings negotiate the joys, pleasures, paradoxes, and injustices of schooling and childhood. He outlines ways in which children's social positions, relationships, and encounters with religious and consumer objects inform who they can become and who and what they value. Drawing on the above research, childhood, religion, and school injustice demonstrates the need to engage with each child's plurality and to recognize multiple inequalities experienced by families across schools. Given that the mass privatization and deregulation of schooling favors majority and advantaged social groups, Kitching argues for the becoming public of school systems and localities. In such a process, majoritarian, narrow self-interest is challenged, unchosen obligations to others are recognized, and collective imaginings of what a good childhood is are publicly engaged. Dr. Carl Kitching joined the School of Education, University of Birmingham, in June 2020 as a reader in education policy. Previously, he was a senior lecturer in education and director of equality, diversity, and inclusion at University College Cork, Ireland. He joins me today to talk about his new book. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books and Secularism. Welcome, Carl. Thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure. So let's start with you. Tell us a bit about your background and how you came to work in your field. Sure. Um, so I started my professional life as a primary school teacher in the west of Dublin, the capital city of Ireland. And um, in that context, that was in the early 2000s when um, there was a lot of change and development happening in Ireland where you had a lot of um, migration um, and really kind of change in terms of ethno-religious diversity in Ireland, in the particular place I was teaching in called Blanchestown. And it led me to become interested in, um, I guess, all kinds of issues around diversity, including racism, including ethno-religious diversity, um, and to some degree, secular religious relationships as well at that time. So um, I was doing a master's uh because I need, I felt I needed to learn more about how to teach um, young people who are learning English as an additional language and learning to read at the same time. And it kind of led me to realize uh, that there was a lot more going on than just kind of a need to support English language teaching. Um, <clears throat> you know, a lot of the children I was engaging with were coming from, say, Nigerian backgrounds or uh, Filipino backgrounds or various other backgrounds where they English academic English wasn't really the major issue facing them. There was issues of racism and segregation that they were facing that were a mo- lot more subtle and implied than they were overt because 
in really Ireland and Irish policy discourse took on this kind of celebratory celebratory idea of migration um, in the late nineties and early two thousand. So it was, but it was more about the institutional structures and how they disadvantaged um, children and young people in schools. So um, I, when I finished my masters, I got a job, a real luxury of a job to be seconded from my teaching job into doing a research assistant job because I was, I just found the masters really, really fascinating. And um, through that, I was facilitated and supported to do a PhD, uh, doctoral research. And I did it on the issue of institutional racism in a secondary school context, actually. I was a primary school teacher and it really at that point I was beginning to leave primary school teaching and, and school teaching behind and get into academic research full time. Um, so I got an academic job in the south of Ireland in University College Cork. Um, and that was between 2008 up until 2020, actually. So I taught there for years on um, teacher education and on multicultural education and sociology of education and was and did lots of research during that time. And the major uh, one of the major projects that I did was linked to the book, to the, the book we're talking about today. The project was called Making Communion, um, Disappearing and Emerging Forms of Childhood in Ireland. And that, the Making Communion reference is a reference to First Holy Communion, the Catholic sacrament that children in Ireland around the age of seven or eight usually um, uh, prepare for and go through as a rite of initiation into the Catholic Church. Um, and I was having been a primary school teacher in a Catholic dominated school system, as in over 90% of the state funded schools in Ireland are Catholic run. Um, I was just fascinated by this ritual. I was fascinated by um, the amount of work that teachers put into preparing children for it during school time in Ireland. I was, I was fascinated and kind of also appalled a bit by the ways in which certain families were represented in, in the media in the UK and in Ireland as being inauthentically religious. So um, particularly traveler and working white working class families who are kind of represented as doing things in a tacky way or in a religiously inauthentic way, or, you know, kind of, a, you know, just really kind of unequal and, and sort of um, discriminatory representations through things like reality TV. And, you know, there was a lot of, there's been a lot of push over the last couple of decades for, the Catholic school system to be um, at, at the very least more balanced um, to, so that for the state to to intervene and to to bring along more integrated and multi-denominational and equality-based education that is secular. And so I found some of the arguments people were making for secular education were kind of sometimes, not always, were sometimes links, sometimes linked to a kind of a um, almost a snobbery about um, First Holy Communion and particularly against those who were seen to do it inauthentically. At the same time, there are a lot of concerns which are very real about the exclusion of uh, non-Catholic and non-religious um, religious minorities and non-religious communities uh, from the Catholic school system because it's a very, very, very majoritarian system. It very much um, facilitates uh, the Catholic population. And Ireland has changed so much in the last few decades in terms of things like religious observance and affiliation. So, you know, the, while you would have over 80% of people in the country identifying as Catholic on the census, not so many of those would be religiously observant. It would tend to be the grandparents' generation, the senior citizens tend to be more um, traditionally pious and religious. Um, and at the same time, you've got all this ethno-religious diversity. You've got new Catholic communities, Polish communities, Filipino communities, um, and various other Christian denominations amongst uh, African Pentecostals, for example, Muslim communities as well. Uh, so you've got so much change going on, I guess, that I was, um, I suppose, I was living and working as a primary school teacher and now as an academic in that field. I've, I've since gone to, um, to England, to the University of Birmingham, but... It's still kind of this this whole area is is where I'm interested in, and the as I say, the um, the book came out of the Making Communion project. Right. So yeah, I was going to ask you how you came to write this particular book. How did this project happen? Sure. So um, like I was saying, the um, I was I was I was always kind of fascinated by the symbolism around First Holy Communion. 
because in Ireland, it had very much become a symbol of normal Irish childhood, of a good childhood, um, and of and a way of, I suppose, locally affirming the growing up of children in public. Um, so it became attached to a very specific notion of belonging and of um, identity in Ireland that was broader than specifically being Catholic. It was more about being Irish, uh, more about belonging to the public, to this community and very much al- aligned with this notion of the local public being a parish, right? So through the 19th century um, into the 20th century, the Catholic Church became, um, you know, organized itself in such a way to really define the boundaries of space and place in Ireland um, in, a, in a kind of an unprecedented way in, in, in that country. So um, I guess I was interested in the kind of how First Communion became this sort of lightning rod or this kind of prism through which so many different aspects of Irish identity are filtered. Um, like I mentioned already, the, the issue of kind of race and class and how certain people are criticized for not doing First Communion right um are doing say wedding ceremonies right or you know you have them you still have to a degree um tv programs like my big big fat gypsy wedding and and things like that that sort of are sort of reality tv in this in this inverted commas way you know they um represent communities in a a kind of well they exploit uh, representations of communities to sensationalize etc and don't really explore the kind of depth of um, religious um, and ethical feeling that's that's there amongst those communities. So um, there's it, uh, you know, and the there's a kind of I, I was always, I was interested as well in the wider anxieties that are expressed through things like first communion and the concern that it has become too materialist and you know Ireland becoming a much wealthier society in the last couple of decades. Um, there's an influx of consumer goods and availability of things that weren't there in the past. And, you know, people getting concerned that um, children and families were being too materialistic. And I kind of wanted to explore that and understand what, what it was all about. And like I say, it was all tied into this issue of everything being structured, First Communion being structured through the, the state-funded school system and how people felt about that, how parents felt about it, how children feel about the whole issue of First Communion and of going through school in a particular way. Um, so um, we, I, I pitched the Irish Research Council, which is the main national, which is the national funding body for things like social science um, and sociology and, and other kinds of um, uh, research in that field. So I pitched to them that it would do a study of different school communities around the country rural, urban, suburban, you know, large town, uh, large in the Irish sense, I guess, because quite a small country. And um, they fund, they decided they'd fund it. So um, the idea was to talk, as I said, the title of that study was Making Communion, Disappearing and Emerging Forms of Childhood in Ireland. So I wanted to understand differing forms of childhood, diverse forms of childhood, diverse school experiences. So we did research in Catholic schools, primary schools, and we did research in what's called Educate Together schools, which are, um, uh, they have been around since the 70s, very much a parent-driven movement of schools that are focused on um, equality and a secular approach to teaching about religions and and worldviews and ethical um, positions um, as part of their wider uh, Learn Together curriculum. So it's quite a different school movement that emerged, as I said, since the 70s and has grown steadily since then, but it's still quite a small proportion of all um, primary schools. And they have, they have a very small number of secondary schools now as well. So I'm really interested in all that change, all what's going on there, all the entanglements of all those things and how children and parents and adults and senior citizens think about them and what does it all mean to people. And, you know, my my major passion and my major goal in terms of my research is about challenging inequalities. So I wanted to unpick the various types of inequalities that go on in this kind of topic. And because I, because I, as I say, it's a prism for lots of other things um, to help us understand Irish society and education. Yeah. So, um, <laughs> so that's where I came from. Um, and uh, I wrote the, the, so that study actually took place in 2013 which is a long way away from the book, which was published in 2020. And there's a reason for that is 
I guess my thinking on it expanded more and more and became more complex. And I found myself kind of being drawn in lots of different directions, but also personally, you know, I went through a period of absence from work because of disability and, and various things. So, you know, I, I kind of I chewed it over for quite a long time before I wrote this book, but I did feel um, nothing had been written in this way about secular religious relations, politics, inequalities in childhood before. And I thought I have the perfect topic um, through which to do that, that it's not just something that should interest people in Ireland or parents in Irish primary schools or teachers or, you know, whoever. It should interest lots of different people who are interested in secular religious relations because it draws in questions about colonialism, neoliberalism, racism, gender, you know, so many different things um, that I felt it's it would be I, I needed time to, to develop this book and um, come up with an overarching perspective for it. So, um, yeah, that's um, that's how I came to came to write the book. And I just want to give credit to two of my colleagues on that um, research, Irish Research Council project, Dr. Jaffa Shanik, who's at the um, University of uh, London, Sweden, and Dr. Gavin Didi, who's in still in University College Cork. Uh, where I was, where I did the project. So, um, yeah, so that's where the book came from. Excellent. Yeah, I wanted to start by asking you about the context of your study. As we've kind of talked about already, um, you are looking at the education system in Ireland in particular, but you also examine the phenomenon of what you call neoliberal education policy, mm -hmm. as well as the privatization of schooling more generally. So could you mm -hmm. talk a little bit about that context? Sure, yeah, absolutely. So, if you think about liberal economic policy, um, broadly speaking, uh, in the 19th century, maybe in the 20th as well, it's an economic policy that just lets the market do what it wants and lets the economy do, do what it wants and the state doesn't really intervene in any significant way. Um, Neoliberal policy is kind of an adjustment to that, which became, you know, countries like Chile became an experiment for in the, with the US and has, has spread around the world as the dominant economic model, whereby the state um, plays a role in marketizing various different public um, services. So opening them to kind of business ways of doing things, opening them to needing to compete with, each, uh, kind of forcing them or nudging them to compete with each other for um they're no longer really considered citizens or considered consumers. So, you know, parents are kind of encouraged to be active consumer citizens who don't just go to the local school, but consider going to a school um, that's, you know, the best school or whatever. So in some countries you see, like where I am now in England, you see a lot of public ranking of schools by the school and the government inspectors. Um, you know, the school is outstanding, the school requires improvement, etc. All these labels are used to describe good schools and not so good or bad schools. Um, you know, public ranking of schools, test scores, etc., which is um, obviously um, a, a feature of lots of different countries, including parts of the United States. So really kind of bringing business and comp competition logics and branding into uh, the public school sector. So it's a kind of privatization that doesn't necessarily have to involve private ownership. It can involve private running of public assets um, and it can involve using sort of private business ideas to run public institutions um, so because a fully privatized system would involve paying fees um, you know, directly to the school, whereas most of the privatization that goes on in the school sector around the world, as far as I know, is actually involves um, people engaging with public, publicly funded schooling in a sort of a privatized or kind of individual, individually self-interested way. So um, when we think about schools and secular religious relations from that point of view, what you see happening around the world and what I see happening in Ireland um, are two things. One, the Irish school system kind of predates a lot of that neoliberal policy because the state has historically said to voluntary communities like religious communities in particular, you go ahead and do, and run the schools and we'll give you the money. Basically, we'll we'll give you the money to build the um, the property and, and the buildings, etc. And we'll pay the teachers. But essentially, you, you run it. And in Ireland, that was um, a colonial arrangement, which the Catholic Church ultimately really benefited from. Um, it was a British colonial state arrangement, essentially. And there's a long history around that that we don't have time to get into because that's a whole podcast slash PhD slash book in and of itself. 
but um the uh so but the uh, the point being that in a way ireland has always had this kind of religiously privatized school system that's been funded by the state and uh, that continues to this day um it's called the patronage model that we have so patrons run our schools and uh there's the catholic patron which is the dominant one and they the diocese around the country uh would sort of be the focal point for for managing the overall schools in uh, catholic schools but obviously other churches the church of ireland the anglican church um and um the uh various other religious and secular secular groups as well so educate together is another one are all patrons rather than them you know rather than us having a kind of a direct state-run school system we have this kind of subsidiary slash privatized system um there is a kind of a side note that uh, we have this there's a new model called the community national school model and the patron of that is the minister for education it's quite confusing <laughs> because we've got this kind of hybridizing of, of lots of different things going on uh, but it's it's still not really a kind of a state-run system in that sense um, because again it is about these patrons now doing more and more to compete for parents interest and for their um uh, I guess they're uh, for them to send their children to their school. So um, you, what you begin to see is things like Catholic tradition becoming recast as this commodity. You see secularism as almost being recast as a commodity as well. Now, it is important to say it's not as simple as everything just being cynically privatized. There are competing notions of here of what is the public good. Um, um, it's just that they are, and, and there is a sincere kind of effort amongst these different patrons to say, well, we think this is the right way to do things. You know, it is very sincere in lots of ways, but at the same time, we can't neglect the kind of very consumerist politics that have emerged from it. I would say that it's more of a feature of the secondary school system because the secondary school system is higher stakes. You've got transfer into college and third level university. Um, but it's still the case with, um, primary schooling and it's important to acknowledge that parents aren't just sending their children to primary schools obviously in in the irish case they will have been well used to sending their children uh, pr to preschool to crashes or kindergarten um prior to that that is completely privatized because the state because there is no state-run system of um, childcare in ireland um, it's, it's, it is almost, I think almost entirely completely privatized and subsidized by the state in sort of, in certain ways. So we've got this kind of creeping privatization of the education sector right from early childhood in through primary into secondary. And, um, even though the state is funding things, uh, for, mo for the vast majority of, of families, it's still this kind of privatized logic and this notion of our secular brand or our religious brand is kind of. The right one right um the funny thing is about this though at the same time is we know that what counts for parents is things like how close is the school to where we live you know um it does it have a reasonable reputation you know so it's it's even though the policy discourse kind of pushes us a little bit more to be these kind of competitive consumers um there's kind of these basic things around geography and and sort of other kind of concerns around where people work etc that inform things but obviously as i mentioned and i think it's in the uh, second chapter of the book um parents are different and families have different levels of mob mobility so some parents some families are able to move obviously to a so-called better neighborhood um to a you know and are able to have the, have the social capital or the social networks to leverage those kinds of moves. Um, and we know that, for example, um, in the case of mass inward migration to Ireland in the last 20 or 30 years, that migrant families of migrant background have tended to find themselves in more disadvantaged areas more often than not. So um, all of these dynamics are going on in the school system, I guess, and it's, it's really important to keep those at the forefront of a conversation about childhood because um, you know, a lot of the discussions around secularism and religion and how we teach things in schools and what's the right way to do it almost neglect these kind of bigger structural problems that sort of really shape what is possible to do in the first place. So, yeah, so I'm, I am a sociologist. And I'm kind of I'm interested simultaneously in the in the big picture and the everyday local experience at the same time, which makes for great fun when you're trying to write. <laughs> <laughs>
So you de- you discuss quite a bit a notion of plurality as it pertains mm-hmm. to the worldviews of both adults and children. And then you mm-hmm. also argue that deeply committed pluralists must be willing to engage with diverse histories, both of Irishness and childhood. So mm-hmm. can you unpack these ideas for us a bit here? Will do, yeah. Uh, so... I use this term plurality because I think it's a bit wider than the idea of pluralism, which is kind of an ideology or a policy discourse. So uh, plurality plurality to me is kind of, it is a radical concept, but it's not a kind of completely morally relativist one where we say, well, anything goes, we can do anything, be anything, say anything we want, um, and it won't hurt anybody. Um, So like I said, plurality to me is, is, is not just this, an ideology called pluralism, um, you know, pluralism kind of suggests we recognize this group and that group exists and we should make efforts to help them to do so through integrated education and secular education, etc. And, and it's not plurality isn't just about religious and non-religious life worlds. Um, to me, at a more fundamental level, plurality is a fact of existence. Um, each of us are formed and kind of held together through our encounters with other people and with everyday objects like the microphones we're using now. Um, uh, but all, all sorts of everyday mundane things, uh, sacred objects and consumer objects. Um, all these kinds of encounters with human and non-human others is how I describe it. They, um, I suppose they shape history. They, they kind of reflect histories of joy and suffering that have marked and shaped our embodied selves, you know, how we feel about things, who we are, you know, it's entangled in the sacred spaces and objects we come across. So, the idea of plurality to me is that we're all a bundle of moving relationships and encounters rather than just this one fixed and static thing. Um, but we're not, we're not just kind of these floating atoms either. We're, um, we're kind of, you know, these moving relationships and encounters that we have are very patterned. They're not entirely random. We have very powerful rituals, timetables, sacraments, you know, that shape us into at least appearing that we have a very fixed and static identity and a narrative and obviously some narratives of identity and belonging are more powerful and more valued in society than others. Um, so and, and like those patterns, those rituals, those ways of organizing things um, and ways of organizing how we encounter the world, they kind of hide the very ordinary and everyday ways we deal with unknown things, uncertain things, unpredictable things, um, and bits of our life that don't fit dominant narratives, but that might make us more powerful, that might make us more able to act effectively in the world and more capable of joy, um, as Bronwyn Davies says in her book, Listening to Children. And I really like, uh, to me, that's really important, that kind of idea of what makes us more powerful in in an affirmative and ethical way, what makes us more able to act ethically in the world and more capable of joy. Those kind of things I keep coming back to in the book. Um, So this way of thinking about the child as plural and the adult as plural to me has really big implications for how we think about how schools serve communities because it moves away from you know a, a very reproductive idea of schools that children are just basically mini reproductions of what adults want them to be um or they you know they need to kind of just reproduce what adults did before them or who they were um because adults we need to challenge that, I think, because adults are not these perfectly formed and finished products that children must emulate. Um, the point here is that adults are actually unfinished too. So that plurality extends not just to children sort of emerging and growing, and um, we'll talk about the concept of growing sideways later, but um, it also extends to adults too as kind of unfinished um, entities in and of themselves who are shaped and encountered through plural relationships. Um so to me, in terms of what that means for schools, is we have to engage this paradox that an emancipatory education, an affirming education, um, an equal education is not just anything goes. We talk and teach about everything and anything and we accept all ideas and, you know, everything is fine. Um, it's 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 but it's it's one that gives sen- it, it, it's one that gives tools to make sense of the world. Right. So that's what's important to me in terms of the implications for schooling giving children tools to make sense of these plural encounters. Um, and, you know, does it, it, it might sound like this is, well, let's, it means, well, let's be super liberal, let's be super radical, but actually it raises the question of um, what do we do with a child who shows deeply committed faith and conservative values when adults around them may not, even including their parents. 
Um, so it's, it's, it's a broader thing about challenging the reproduction of not just religious or conservative religious um, uh, assumptions, but also secularist assumptions about how children grow up, because we've got this secular narrative of children growing up in a very linear way, and then children come to choose um, a worldview or a life world when they're adults. But my study shows, the book shows, and you know, so much of the research on children and religion and ethics shows that children make sense of the world using religious concepts, um they use but they use multiple forms of knowledge they use science they use rationality they use religion faith they use popular culture to a large degree as well to make sense of the world so again that plurality is about um all the different plural kinds of knowledge that children encounter and what tools do we um give them to make sense of all those things because like I say, in, in the school system, we're in this kind of dominant reproduction mode. We reproduce the knowledge of those that came before rather than thinking about what um, forms of knowledge are children actually encountering both within and outside of school, offline and online, um, and how are we helping them make sense of it? So, um, you know, the other piece about plurality as well, I've been very clear in the book, is that... Um, plurality deep commitment to plurality is not about saying like i said we we just accept every single idea and every way of doing things because that leaves you open to exactly what's going on right now around the world which is very bad faith uses of ideas like freedom of speech to um to legitimize racism to legitimize transphobia you know to um sort of op open up a space which had been um I won't say closed down because transphobia, racism, and all those things are still very much part of the structures of society, but at least some sort of broadly accepted cultural norms around equality that were campaigned for and won by um, civil rights movements, anti-colonial movements, feminists, anti-racists, queer, etc. Um, those kind of those kind of gains, if you like, are being constantly chipped away by this very relativist idea of well you're 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 not allowing me to express my view um when that view is actually clearly racist or clearly hate speech or clearly and um hate speech adjacent if you like so for me plurality and pluralism in that sense can't tolerate everything it has to draw a line on things like um uh hate speech things like colonialism things like uh, settler colonialism in various states um so yeah, you know, it is it is interesting how that plays out currently in the school systems around where that I'm familiar with in England and Ireland at the moment, where there's kind of a surge of um, popular discussion around what Russia is doing in Ukraine, but we don't talk about um, similar or sort of um, re uh, resonant other things that authoritarian and sort of um, uh, controlling states do in other countries like what uh, or in other regions like what Israel is doing in Palestine for example like what's happening in India at the moment with pers persecution of uh, Muslim groups so um, you know plurality to me is about thinking locally and globally at the same time um, and bringing that in a sincere way through the curriculum to serve um, communities and having a sense of solidarity with multiple what I call in the book, multiple known others, the ones, the people that we know, the groups that we know locally and internationally, but also the unknown others whose needs and whose um, rights, I suppose, are invisible. You know, it's only, like I mentioned, transphobia um, there. And I guess it's only in recent years in the global north that the rights of um, transgender and non-binary people have been sort of in any way recognized and obviously there's a massive backlash against that as well so that sense of what are the unknown um sort of needs and the unknown inequalities as well being live to that is, is something i think that we could do really much better on in school systems and in certainly in universities as well um and it's you, you, the thing is you can't really because it's unknown you can't really uh, legislate for what it is but being open to it or being open to the other and being open to their otherness um i guess is is key so yeah i've, I've um so that's that's to me what a deeply committed pluralist does um and um 
in the in the context of this book and in the context of the school sector, to me, it's partly about pushing it back against majoritarianism. Um, it's not about being anti-Catholic. Um, I want to be very clear about that. Um, you know, even at a personal level, I grew up in a Catholic family. Um, I would consider myself agnostic now. Um, so I'm, I'm not. It's not. This book is not pro or against Catholicism. It's, it's certainly not pro or against religion either. It's it's more about. Um, challenging things like majoritarianism um, in whatever context, in whatever context that is. And um, in thinking and, and thinking differently about majority groups, because often majority groups represent themselves as this monolithic block. But if you think about um, uh, just, for example, intersectionalities with class, for example, Catholics and Protestants in Northern Ireland who are involved in kind of sectarian conflict historically and um, you know, the conflict is still is still there, although the, the kind of the overt violence behind it is not as apparent. Um, class struggle has always been a feature of, of the Northern Irish um, sectarian um, conflict. And that's something that is sort of hidden and sort of not really talked about as, as much as it could be in, in, the, in, the, in the mainstream. And the same with LGBTQIA, lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender, queer, intersex, asexual, communities and the commonalities that they have across religious and non-religious life worlds as well. So um, I think the majority, uh, this kind of idea of the majority being this homogenous this block of people who all have the same feelings and sort of don't have affinities with others um, needs to be unpacked um, and needs to be kind of thought about in those intersectional ways. So, yeah. Yeah, let's return to that idea about growing sideways. So um, you argue for the recognition that children have a more complex and varied journey from innocence to knowledge that some people might imagine. So th I think mm -hmm. this is really interesting. Tell us about the research you did here that helped you form these ideas and what sure. insight that gives you about education policy. Okay. Um, so... I took the idea of growing sideways from a book called The Queer Child, which is um, a literary theory book um, about childhood, uh, modern childhood by an academic called Catherine Bond Stockton. And um, I just found it a really compelling. It's, it's not it's it's um, it's about the ways that we imagine children to grow up and sort of the non-normative um, ways in which children actually experience the world that don't fit into that narrative of growing up in a very linear way from innocence to experience and from or knowledge and from dependence to independence. Um, but children are predominantly imagined as growing up in that way, in, in that narrative, and they think of themselves in that way because that's the way things are framed for them and by them actually in, in child culture as well. Um, but that narrative of growing up is sometimes very constraining because um, sometimes we want to project, protect children paradoxically more than we want to hear their voices or understand the nuances of their experiences. Um, because, you know, and children explore the world in ways that might challenge received wisdom or the romanticized way we think about childhood as this universal stage of innocence, which actually is, is a bit of a fiction if you actually look at the, the detail of children's lives around the world um, in, in various different circumstances. So in the book, um, I give examples of ways in which children talk about things that might be classed as not really appropriate for their um, generation or might be considered as a bit too much. Um, but in a sense, um, you could say, um, some people might argue, um, unfortunately, they take them in their stride. Um, things like death in their community uh, inequalities of various kinds, exclusion at school, especially in a Catholic school system where being from an atheist family doesn't really work well when you're in a small rural uh, uh, community with one, one small Catholic school. Um, you've, but there's also things like children being playful and sometimes sarcastic about um, other, other people's religious views, other people's ethno-religious communities. One kind of line that I noticed in, in the research and I've, I've talked about it in the book, is how some um, uh, of, of the children that I interviewed uh, and, did, and did work with, um, you know, they're seven or eight years of age, and they would kind of be talking about their more pious grandparents' generation or the senior citizens they see in kind of a mocking tone, um, you know, that sort of mocking the fact that they're praying and, and being holy, as they call it. But also, you know, children 
very clearly evidence a kind of a spirituality um, and a sense of belonging to something that's much bigger than themselves in a way that isn't hasn't social science hasn't really explored in any meaningful way because historically we've thought of children as kind of blank canvases who don't really make who don't really make sense of the world for themselves without without adults being around so um you know children kind of connecting to um the material world as well in, in ways that we might not think they can um the other thing in terms of I suppose the way ch the ways children navigate the world that we don't normally think about is that they have to live all the time with not knowing about things in the ways that adults are supposed to know about things. <laughs> um, and it's funny because sometimes they accept that and sometimes they don't accept that because they just find they're excluded, I suppose, from understanding or knowing things that are going on because they're being told it's in their best interest not to be told certain things. Um, there's other things as well about sexuality and the body and all those kind of stuff and the silences that are there, which are common across schools, whether they're religious or secular um, across the world, you know, um, our discomfort of talking about the body with children and things like that. So I kind of explore all of those themes as issues that come up um, that children sort of encounter all the time that they feel that it's, it's clear that sort of just staying silent on it with them isn't really working. And they're sort of the idea that they should just grow up to learn about it later sort of doesn't really work either. So they, they find ways of making sense of these things, um, which I call in a way growing sideways. Um, they kind of move beyond the impulse for adults to protect and shield them. Um, and of course, part of the reason adults do this is because they see them, they themselves have not simply grown up and left their adult, their childhood behind. Um, and this is how growing sideways as a concept relates to adults as much as it relates to children. Adults, um, obviously, they are par you know, parents and guardians and carers, I guess, and teachers and religious leaders. Obviously, they're engaging with children in the present. They're helping form, form them, etc. But they're also doing that through um, using images of what a good childhood is based partially on their own memories and reconstructions of a good childhood and a bad childhood that they had or that they saw in the past. Um, so adults aren't just attached to the children that are currently around them now. They're also attached to ideas about childhood that engage their own imagination, their own fantasy and their own memory. So I guess in the book, this concept of growing sideways is used um, to point towards how both adults and children negotiate various kinds of knowns and unknowns in their worlds and various kind of differences and kind of things that aren't really easy to explain. Um, and really why it might seem like a very esoteric concept that has sort of it's interesting to kind of think about, but does it have any material impact on schools? But, um, I think it does because, um, and, and, and I think it has an impact, it could have an impact on education policy because if we have an education system and a way of doing education that thinks about intergenerational relationships and the lateral connections rather than just the hierarchy of moving from one generation to the next, um, thinking across these kind of knowns and unknowns and differences that we have, thinking, thinking about the ways that children um, engage with things that may not be normally considered of their generation and thinking about the ways that adults rely on images of a good childhood to inform the ways that they parent, the way that they teach, etc. I think those things, um, having that conversation amongst teachers will be important in terms of challenging some of the majoritarianism that's there um, around what a good childhood is. I think for children as well, it opens up a kind of a space, obviously in, in, in the most appropriate way, Again, not a free-for-all of any kind of idea. Obviously, children are vulnerable um, and are more, some of the more vulnerable citizens in our society. But to give them a bit of breathing space to see, to, to, to make sense more of the various different encounters that they have with the world, whether that's with their friends, whether it's through consumerism, through religion, through the internet, whatever it is. And um, uh, like I said earlier on, I guess, it's also about... Um, recognizing and engaging and understanding children who draw deeply on faith uh, in order to make sense of the world. Um, and, you know, sometimes that can be with, with children who whose parents and the adults around them don't engage deeply with faith. So um, there's a kind of a nuance there that's, that's often missed and um, I think would really enrich our education system and, and education policy if it was, if it was 
confronted in a more direct way. So that brings me to my next question, because you actually look really closely at how children engage with moral issues that they encounter in the real Mm -hmm. world. And oftentimes these are moral issues that, like you say, uh, kind of go beyond what we might imagine is uh, age appropriate, but that's the real Mm -hmm. world. Uh, So what did you discover about their capacity for ethics? So um, in the book, I used Rosie Bredotti. She's a, a renowned philosopher, a feminist philosopher. Used her concept of nomadic ethic, nomadic ethics, um, to inform my thinking about um, children's ethical relationships. Um, and the point of it really is to say that children encounter values, ideas, and tools of religion, of science, of rights, of reason, of popular culture, in ways that they that may open up ethical relationships with others and may close them down. So. I like the idea of nomadic ethics because it's 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 about saying that there isn't a very very fixed and prescribed way of saying what is exactly what exactly an ethical relationship is. It's not about predicting exactly what ethics always looks like. It's to it's to say, um, but it is to say that um, ethical relationships, while we don't always know in advance what they would look like, we do know that they should enhance collective freedom. A uh, sense of joy, sense of belonging, sense of contentment, uh, at a collective level, as I say, not just the individual self-interest, and that challenge prevailing inequalities um, at local and global level, um, and are accountable at some level to multiple known and, un- and unknown others. So, you might say that's very he- heady stuff, and that's again very esoteric. But actually, if, if you think about it, and I did, I guess, in the book the very ordinary and mundane ways that children encounter the world and encounter each other, those elements are very, very clearly there are sometimes missing uh, from their own encounters with others. So like really, really tiny, tiny little things that kind of can increase and, and affirm um, joy and one's power uh, or one's sense of and, and collective emancipation. For example, um, a lot of the children and I haven't said actually at, at this point uh, to this point that, you know, a lot of the white Irish Catholic children, they wouldn't be very religiously observant. They wouldn't have been going to church every Sunday. You know, the communion year was kind of the focused, focused year for them. Um, so they wouldn't kind of be very, a lot of them wouldn't necessarily have a very strong faith, but some individuals would. Um, but they did talk, they did use this concept of holiness a lot. And they said, well, you know, religion and First Communion is about being holy, being more holy. And there's a kind of a sense of morality about that, I guess, and sort of just being good um, from the point of view of the church, but uh, in their eyes. But um, when we think about ways in which uh, ethical sort of relations and ways in which we can enhance joy and um, our accountability to each other, they they pointed out several times that... um, church is a very adult centered space where they have to kind of conform even the furniture like you know there isn't a child there isn't child-friendly furniture in a lot of churches where they could sit up the front and see what's going on um obviously the rituals tend to be very solemn and for that reason they're adult centered uh, as well but um little things like um when we asked some children can you be holy and can you dance at the same time um and uh, they would say, yeah, yeah, because they were kind of were talking about <laughs> these kind of juxtapositions of different ways of being and how solemn uh, the church space was. And in terms of uh, ethical accountability to the children were drawing out the church by saying, "Is it, you know, we it, you can be holy and have fun at the same time. So they found it overly solemn. Um, and they were saying you can, it doesn't have to be either or. So they're kind of drawing out the ethical accountability of the church there to say, listen, can you make it more child friendly? Can you make it more? It's not just child friendly, actually. It's more playful, more kind of enjoyable for everyone. And, you know, there was also various other um, non-white Irish Catholic and Christian groups who would, would have said, you know, in our country, things are a lot more fun than this, you know. Um, but I suppose children's capacity for ethics for me is kind of a natural feature of their encounters with each other, the way that they share affinities with each other, like, you know, they would say things like, well, we have the church at the center of our community. 
uh, because God keeps us safe there. Or, you know, when we ask them to design a, a kind of a, an ideal way of, of organizing their community using making maps, etc., they say, well, we'll have the cinema in the center so that everybody can is equidistant to it. Um, but really, children's capacity for ethics and ethical accountability to others and kind of enhancing each other's sense of joy and belonging um, was shown in the ways that they talked about belonging to multiple places and spaces, um, you know, making a clear claim, for example, to say, well, um, I am Irish, but maybe I'm, maybe I'm not from Ireland, but I'm Irish, you know, so children whose parents are uh, children who might have migrated as very small children to Ireland or whose parents were, uh, at, at, who might have been born here, but um, whose parents were born elsewhere, etc. So they're kind of new ways of framing Irishness, for example, and kind of making a claim um, on on being Irish. I suppose that was that is in generational terms new. Um, doing things like, for example, critiquing border controls when we watched videos um, where you know we watched one video um, called Abby's Memory Box, I think, which, which was about um, a Nigerian Irish girl whose, whose dad couldn't come to Ireland because he couldn't get a visa and you know um we talked about we talked about that so we talked about lots of the kind of moral situations um you know but there were also ways in which so so i would regard those in a way as ways in which children opened up an ethical encounter with the other with with those who might be different to them or might have might have an affinity um, with them but there are also plenty of examples of how children often from majority groups would close down that opportunity to have a kind of a ethical responsibility to others. So for example, um, and obviously a lot of this is conditioning, right? So um, for example, um, we, uh, it was really interesting, actually, a, a complex dynamic where we would watch some videos, obviously with seven and eight year old children, we're not just doing lengthy interviews with them. We're kind of doing activities where we watch videos, we look at photos, we, we talk about them and we talk about what they mean. So one really interesting, um, video that sticks in my mind we, we showed a short film to children in, in lots of different uh, uh in urban and rural uh, contexts across the country where um it was a it was a short film of a little girl who woke up in a dark apartment flat and she put on a really old traditional communion first communion dress white dress and the film is called the white dress is by vanessa gilday i think and she walked through the street on her own and went into sorry, went into a pharmacy and stole two white ribbons when it looked like it seemed like no one was watching and uh then she went into the church she did the first communion ceremony again without any adults around her just um everybody else had their parents and and whatever or, or carers and uh, she came out of the church then she took this guy was hang, handing out five uh, pound notes or five euro notes to to, to children just as a kind of a, a, a gift a good wish thing and she went off and got a bag of fish and chips and she went home again. And so it was a really interesting opportunity to talk about things like poverty, to talk about things like children's autonomy, um, to talk about oh, as well when she stole uh, the white ribbons, um, what was going on there was, and, and uh, you know, one of one the question I was most interested to ask children in different parts of Ireland was, was anybody watching her? And I expect from my own upbringing, it kind of betrays my own upbringing. I expected them all to say, God, you know, <laughs> but the first thing they all said was CCTV. Um, and it just, <laughs> yeah, it, it just didn't, um, it never occurred to me that they would say that. And in a way, to me, that indicates how they think about the ethics of public space and the, how they're being watched. So to me, that implies an ethical sort of capacity that they have to see how they're being watched uh, by various human and non-human lenses. Um, but at the same time, things that we talked about in terms of poverty um, and in terms of her um, doing the right thing or the wrong thing, you know, children who wouldn't, it was clear that, for example, children who came from lower income backgrounds were more likely to show empathy towards her for, for stealing uh, the white ribbons. Um, others were less, <laughs> were, were more judgmental, to be honest. And it was clear often that children from more advantaged backgrounds had, um, you know, they had empathy, obviously, for various different things, but they didn't, they weren't shown or given, kind of given that experience of encountering others in a way that 
um, deals with inequalities and deals with those on a global level um, or at a local level as well. And that that works in lots of ways. It works in terms of being Christian versus Muslim. It works in terms of um, social class being lower income background or more middle class background, etc. So. I really what I was the point I was making in the book was that children of all these different encounters, which kind of raise questions about our responsibility towards each other. And it's very clear that through all those encounters, their their ethical capacities are being shaped all the time and their openness or their kind of lack of openness to others um, is being shaped all the time. And I think the point around what schools do with that is it's not is is that first of all it's not just about a prescribed ethics curriculum although that's important um it's about the way the school organizes itself and thinks about the kinds of encounters children are having with each other and with uh, known and unknown others and the kinds of solidarity they're being encouraged to show with uh, people who aren't in the same situation as themselves um so there's it's it's more about the school's wider approach um to being a citizen and to being part of a democracy and or being part of a society and a global society as well um but then in terms of the teaching of ethics um you know i talk in the last chapter of the book about the fact that the um the ireland's national council for curriculum assessment which is essentially the statutory body um, responsible for designing the the secular curricula that we have across lots of different subjects subject areas um and is, is required in every single school in the country. It's, you know, that includes all of the uh, faith schools um, that um, they have introduced a kind of a consultation process around having an ethics. I'm going to get the name of it wrong now, and I just need to look it up again. Um, an ethics, uh, sorry, education about religions and beliefs and ethics curriculum, right? So in a way, it's, it's a part of a process of government recognizing that um, lots of children have no alternative but only to um, witness and observe and participate in catholic um, ways of understanding ethics and and the world and um, that's majoritarian so this is one of the efforts to kind of say well um, we may not be the government's view i guess is we may not be able to do an awful lot about changing the school system and, and how schools are run but we can change the national curriculum which everybody has to teach um, to some degree. So um, this curriculum has, is, is, has been out for a process of consultation. I'm not, I'm not completely up to date on where it is right now, but um, you know, it is really important, first of all, that children have an opportunity to think in secular terms about ethics and about the fact that there are life worlds and worldviews that don't necessarily have to, that don't involve um, thinking about the transcendent and, and focus on the, the, the present world. But um, I think there's still, in, in some of the discourse around that, I think there's, there's been a missed opportunity to think about how we break down very rigid notions of religious and non-religious um, and individual and community and, uh, you know, those kind of binaries that fix us as essentially different because a lot of curricula tend to teach about religions and, and, and ethical worldviews in a way that says, well, these people do this and these people think that, and this is how they do that and all that. And it's kind of just sort of all obviously trying to enlighten people about experiences and, and ways of doing things that are different to theirs. But at the same time, sort of reproducing a, a very fixed sense of, well, they're like that and we're like this and us and them kind of thing. So um, to me, while you do need to obviously teach about various different groups and, and how they, how they, approach the world in that patterned way we also need to look about look at encounters and think about encounters and think about the unpredicted and the sort of the plural plurality i guess of each group that we talk about so that we're not just reproducing this idea of well these people are like that and these people are like that and we're we're kind of really coming back to that essential relationality that we have between us all because you know catholics in one place are going to look very different to catholics in a, in another um, Muslims in one place are going to look different to Muslims in another. And I'm not even getting into talking about various different denominations of Islam, obviously. So um, I suppose that that piece can be missing sometimes from uh, curricula that teach about ethics and teach about different religious um, life worlds. And I think that sense of encounter and of context and of space and place and of um, fluidity and plurality to me is often missing from how we teach about ethics and 
I guess we need to be more nomadic is, is, um, is coming back to that notion of nomadic ethics, um, uh, to me, I think is important. So ultimately you conclude that the best model for education would be comprised of, and I'll quote you here, affirmative unchosen school publics. So mm. tell us what that means and why you think that can best serve a plurality of childhoods and communities. Sure. So I guess I wouldn't use the word model. I don't know if I, I can't remember if I used the word model in the book. I don't think I did, but I, I think I... Um, oh, that might have been me. Sorry. <laughs> yeah, that's okay. No, 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 that's cool. I, but, and I say that purely because I, it's more of a philosophy um, that can predict exactly how things are going to turn out, right? Because um, to me, the I suppose the, the process of becoming... The, affirmative means that we're not just dealing with pain all the time, that we're trying to move beyond pain and sort of grievance. I, I do talk about sort of very legitimate grievances of inequality in the book and sort of the sort of the legacy of various and the continuation of various different types of domination and inequality. But the, the notion of being affirmative is about how we transmute that pain into joy and into um, um, sort of building relationships with others on a on an equal footing. So the unchosen piece, when I say unchosen, I'm say, I'm kind of pushing back against the very marketized and neoliberal notion of school choice where we serve our own self, family self-interest above all else. And we think about um, actually what kind of unchosen responsibilities do we have to each other to, to, to do actually what Educate Together and the Educate Together Schools um, movement in Ireland calls learning together. Um, and... I say that, and I use the word publics as well, because I am very committed to the idea of public education, but what public education looks like needs to be negotiated locally and nationally and globally um, in, a, in, a, in a very sort of specific way. You can't just, you know, I do talk a lot in the book about the fact that the sort of this idea of a universal common school model that is perfect and that has no problems with it, it doesn't work like that. Schooling is very messy. Um, relationships are contextual, uh, the needs of different localities um, differ. Uh, so supporting those localities to really think about how do we engage with each other um, in a way that really recognizes each other's worth in, in that affirmative way and that really does talk about inequalities and doesn't shy away from them and is real about that. Um, I think we've, you know, we've never really had that opportunity in a very systematic structured sense in Ireland. And I, I see around in England and in various other parts of the world that where you have marketization, that there's less and less of those kinds of opportunities because schools are pitted against each other to get parental attention. Um, so what I want to see is, you know, I do, well, I do want to see models of public education where you don't um, have to fight to get into a school. You don't have to sort of sort of elbow your way out through the queue um, to get in there, that there is... Uh, a good school for everyone in every context. Um, a good public education is available to everybody. Um, but that doesn't close down um, the need for, that doesn't negate the need for religious, particularly for minority religious um, schools and for my, schools for minority groups in particular, because it's been shown time and time again that even the best public education systems haven't catered well for um racially minoritized communities um, for relig religiously minoritized communities as well. So you would need to really have a really strong anti-racist public school system for you not to need sort of schools that, that are more private and that specifically cater to particular community groups. I think you'll probably always need that uh, to an extent because I don't think um, the nation state has, is ever going to solve that because in my, you know, I've talked about it in the book, the nation state um, and secularism really what it tends to do at, at very best is regulate violence and inequalities rather than eliminate them. Uh, the state isn't really that benign when it comes to dealing with inequalities against, against minority communities. So um, to me, you will need, you know, it's, it's always going to be the case that you're going to need, uh, minoritized communities are going to need their own spaces, um, which it's, itself is, again, not ideal. Um, but in terms of the unchosen school publics, it's really a sense of, um, you know, we define this space and place together. We um, negotiate it. We do recognize that conflict is an inevitable feature of 
what we do. It's called, um, it's a term called agonistic pluralism that Chantal Mouffe, Ernest de Laclau, as you have used, and that Deborah Udell and others in education have talked about. The agonism is basically that to recognize that there is going to be conflict in a democracy, but there doesn't necessarily need to be antagonism. Um, so uh, I think that's, to me, what an infer- affirmative unchosen school public is about. Um, I can't predict what it would look like, but I can certainly say in the Irish school context that um, the space for affirmative unchosen school publics is narrow. And a lot of the reason for that is a combination of the colonial patronage school model that we have and its intensification through, you know, consumer marketized competitive um, ways of, of organizing things. So, yeah, um, that's to me building those publics is kind of something that each community has to um, really take on for itself with support, obviously, from the state and, and public resources. But um what that will look like in each context, I can't predict. Okay. Well, Carl, I've taken up a lot of your time, but in the few minutes we have left, can you tell us what you're currently working on? Sure, yeah. Um, So I have become more and more interested in this idea of freedom of speech and freedom of expression in schools. Um, I'm sure you'll be aware of a lot of the... I've mentioned how right-wing groups have been using the idea of free speech to... I guess, um, re-legitimize openly racist and homophobic and transphobic views. And uh, there's been lots of attacks on anti-racist forms of education across Western countries. Um, So what I'm working on at the moment is a project to research how young people in England's secondary schools feel about um, freedom of expression, particularly on issues of race equality and faith equality. So I'm really curious to find out in the English school context how much of an opportunity young people have to talk about issues of racism, to talk about issues of um, religious uh, inclusion or exclusion, um, and to see it from and to to examine how different uh, and diverse young people experience that. Because, you know, there will be some who will be quite, um, who will want kind of very sort of strong anti racist approaches in their classroom and there'll be others who think that there's too much of it um so i guess um i want to kind of explore that um, issue with young people and also with their teachers so i've got a project coming up on that in the next two and a half years that i'm excited about wow that sounds really good very timely stuff yeah uh well i want to thank you again for being on the show today i really enjoyed your book and i was so glad to have the chance to chat with you about it in person Thanks so much. It's been a, it's been a real honor and, and a pleasure and privilege to um, get a chance to talk about it at length. Thank you, Carrie. Thanks so much. Goodbye. Bye-bye. I want to thank you for listening to New Books and Secularism, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. Once again, I'm Carrie Lynn Evans, and I've been speaking with Dr. Carl Kitching about his new book, Childhood, Religion, and School Injustice, published by Cork University Press. If you enjoyed this podcast, please write us a positive review in your podcast player, post about us on social media, or tell a friend. I'm also always interested in hearing from you about your thoughts on this podcast and the material we cover. For example, this week I found that uh, some of the things that Carl said about um, childhood and childhood perspectives on the world really resonated with me, and I'm wondering what you think about it. So if you want, you can find me on Twitter at Carrie Linland. That's at C-A-R-R-I-E-L-Y-N-N-L-A-N-D on Twitter. Or do you have a book you'd like covered on one of our shows? You can contact us through our website, newbooksnetwork.com. And you can also check out our New Books Network page on Facebook or follow us on Twitter, where you'll see every time the network posts a new interview. In the meantime, I'll wish you an à la prochaine from Quebec until my next conversation about new books.